Welcome to Chain Reaction, the Foreign Policy Research Institute's flagship network of podcast series examining the political, security, economic, and social trends shaping Europe and Eurasia. Throughout the year, we're talking with experts about developments in Russia's war in Ukraine, the new European security order, the past, present, and future of the Baltic states, Russia's political economy, and great power competition in the region. Join us each month for Bear Market Brief, the understanding of, of Russia, which is broadly as Russia is a great power that has its own special path, that has a mission, and that needs a strong state, you know, and, and a different path to that of the West. I think when you look at these other industries, what you find is that there's a lot of pain built up uh, in, in different parts of the Russian economy. Some of it's only going to be felt over a longer period of time. Baltic ways. The countries that when the war started, they were willing to be, you know, those uh, voices of uh, moral conscience. The continent. I think that this conflict today proves that we are able to go past grievances and that we are able to look into the future, into the common future together. Report in short. This is the real Achilles heel of Putin's mobilization. And of course, our flagship chain reaction. These two countries are interacting militarily or have been interacting in several different conflicts. And in some cases, they're on the same side and in some cases, they're not. New episodes are available each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the Bear Market Brief. If you're in Vladimir Putin's inner circle, Russia's children do need education. Patriotic education. After all, it's just another brick in the wall of a personalist, authoritarian system. Welcome back to the Bear Market Brief. I'm your host, Darren, and this episode, beyond the Pink Floyd references, will be continuing to explore narratives in Russia, less this time about how Russia sees its intervention in Ukraine, and more about how some of these narratives are passed down from generation to generation, and how do generations differ from each other as far as their views on Putinism. Joining this time is Dr. Allison Edwards. Allison is a lecturer at the Bath Spa University in History and Politics. Her research focuses on Russian militarism, specifically the militarization of youth, patriotic education systems, and uses of history and memory. I learned a lot this conversation, and I hope you will too. Let's jump in. Allison, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So let's start uh, with a quick intro. What's keeping you busy these days research-wise? Uh, lots of things. Um, so I'm currently doing some research with Dr. Jenny Mathers from um, Aberystwyth uh, University. We are focusing on um, youth militarization in Russia today, um, specifically on um, ideas of heroism. So how youth are being um, co-opted into events related to the war in Ukraine through ideas of heroics of the people of the past and how they could also be heroes of the future. Yeah, that's kind of the stuff I'm working on. And also kind of the conversations about Russia's supposed humiliation by the West and how that also fits into um, education at the moment in uh, and around Russia's youth. So here, here on the podcast, a lot of narratives of late, and we're going to keep exploring this topic and how it how it concerns Russia. I guess a question that I frequently wish I ask more guests, how did you arrive at that topic? What what sparked that interest? 
You know, I ask myself this question pretty often, um, or mainly because sometimes you're really looking at some dark narratives and the way that, it, that youth are being exposed to these is actually very sinister. So sometimes I think, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Um, it actually um, became an interest of mine during my PhD. Um, so I was doing a PhD on 1990s Russia and militarization in Russia at that time. And um, one of the things that I became particularly interested in was commemoration, particularly the 1995 Victory Day Parade. So it was the first Victory Day Parade on a national level since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And as part of this parade, there was a bigger discussion taking place in Russia in amongst the political elite about the patriotic spirit of Russia's youth. And so as I was sitting in the archives in Russia, there was uh, there were a lot of documents about um, how the youth can be brought into these narratives. So how the youth could, um, for example, be exposed to veterans in schools, so veterans visiting schools, um, so that they can have that direct generational link. And, and youth were at this time, like a, a target of the Russian state. And that's when I suddenly started to think, wow, you know, there's so much that's been invested to youth there. And you can see it today as well in, in Putin's time. So that's how, I, that's how I got into it. And what a great segue at the end there. Let's, let's talk about Putin's time here. Um, I guess we'll start with a, a question I hope isn't too broad. How do young people fit into Putin's vision for society in modern Russia? Youth are a very important category. So I think as it kind of fits in nicely to how I even got into this topic, I guess, because as I said to you, I started to see this in um, what I was looking at from the 1990s. But, you know, what we look at in terms of Putin today, a lot of people say that the Russia that Putin now lives in, leads over, leads over, leads, is one that he's created. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, Putin has renovated things that existed before. The Soviet state um, invested a lot in the youth in the same way that 1990s, the Yeltsin presidency started to invest in the youth, particularly in the 1990s. And so I often think of Putin as kind of painting a house or renovating a house that's already been built. And what he's doing in his, under his leadership is he's renovating how Russia thinks about the youth and how they use them. So youth are a very important category in Putin's Russia. And I would say before 2020, so they've been a kind of an important category for Putin for a, for a long time. But it's 2020 when they were actually written into law, into the constitution as a priority of the state. Could jump in for a second. Just to, just to clarify. So when we're talking about youth, do we mean school kids, teenagers as a whole category? What, what is the age cutoff here, I guess, as we think about this? Yeah, um, that's a really good question because um, I've been looking at research where you could probably cut off youth at about 30, which is great for me. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm still youth. I'm but, old, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we're, we're talking about 30. But what I'm going to be talking about, I, I guess, my specialty is more of the school kids. Um, so I can definitely talk about kind of the differences between those who are in the the older ages of youth and what what we would probably characterize in terms of Russia as the lost generation. But yeah, what I'm talking about um, in terms of the state priority are those who are not lost, not part of that lost generation. Um, the ones that are still in um, compulsory education, the ones that the state can explicitly reach through compulsory channels. 
Um, and that's, yeah, they were written into the, the 2020 constitution. So I would say that they're a very, very important category um, in Putin's Russia. They fit in very well. They, you know, the state leaders have cottoned on to the fact that they are going to be moving Russia into the next stage of life after the current leaders don't exist anymore. So it's very much um, the ones that I focus on, the kids, the youth that I focus on are those that are uh, forced into particular educational settings like schools, compulsory education. So a couple of follow-up questions, a lot of really interesting strings to, to pull here. With kind of compulsory education in Russia, what are the messages that are being broadcast to school kids now? And I guess, how is that education being delivered? Um, so compulsory education would be schooling actual schooling so kids being sat in the school chairs so when I talk about compulsory I'm talking about um the school system itself so I'm not talking about these extra patriotic groups where students can sign up and can't I'm talking here about the actual school system itself this is really interesting and actually quite a contrast to other countries who might not see the benefits of the humanities but Russia puts a lot of emphasis on historical education for Russia the kind of important value that they need to communicate with youth in Russia today is this idea that they need to be patriotic. So as I was saying with the constitution, children had been written in there as a state policy priority. It was that it was the the duty of the generation of the state of society to foster patriotism in that youth. And they feel like the best way to do that is for students to be exposed to a history education that champions Russia. So what we see in the education system in the curriculum is, first of all, an emphasis on historical education, increase in the amount of time that history is being taught in schools. That's happened in uh, recent years. A longer term uh, project of the state has been creating a single track textbook, which has just kind of one narrative on Russia's history. That is basically kind of edited depending on the age of the youth that they are um, that they're giving these textbooks to. That's not currently in play. Uh, it hasn't yet been approved, but they've been working on it for a long period of time. And and kind of emphasis on that single track textbook ebbs and flows depending on what events are taking place. Very popular in two thousand and fourteen during the annexation of Crimea, and again it's become a popular talking point today. So, yeah, through history education and through the increase of history education in schools. Um, a comparative question, if if I might, just for, I guess, my own context. To what extent does that sort of patriotic education, at least in a primary school setting, differ from, in your experience, education in the UK or education in, in the US? I'm glad you asked this because I get asked this so much. I get asked, oh, well, isn't this also happening in British schools? Isn't this also happening in the US schools? To an extent, yes. Uh, you know, especially US critical race theory, for example, the argument for not having and not having critical race theory in American schools is because students will become, will feel negative about their historical past. That's why we won't have critical race theory in schools, particularly I know the conversation is taking place in Florida at the moment, in the US. In Britain, uh, the same discussions are happening, particularly in conservative branches, around how Britain might um, depict the British Empire, for example. So um, decolonizing the curriculum initiatives, this is an initiative taking place in the UK, is calling for 
not just talking about the British Empire and uh, the grand, great British Empire, but also talking about, you know, the impact of colonization and British uh, political leaders as I said, mostly in conservative branches, are uh, worried that by doing that, what they're going to do instead is they're going to raise an unpatriotic nation that doesn't feel any pride in its in its nation, in its country. And so that's where I would say there's similarities, right? Every country in the world will present a particular version of its past that it wants society to pick up on, that it wants society to take forward. And because they want society to feel a particular way about that country, Every country does that. However, in Russia, it's not just love the motherland. It's not just let's learn about all these great victories because we want you to love the motherland and feel pride in it. There's another element to it, which is the sinister part. And it's not just love the motherland, it's love the motherland enough to die for it. So what we see in history education in Russia is not just, oh, look at all these wonderful victories that Peter I commanded or Alexander Suvorov commanded or look at the great victories that we um, achieved over Nazi Germany because those stories are there, but it's also talking about the sacrifice of those people in those wars. And sacrifice is a huge, a very prominent discourse or narrative within youth discourses. So in the textbooks, there's lots of emphasis on the sacrifice of ancestors. Um, In fairy tale books specifically, so books where they've written history in fairy tale stories for like younger, younger, younger kids. So you're talking like kindergarten age. It's, um, I mean, I read some wild textbooks where they were saying, you know, you kids might have to do this too. You know, and it's, they they kind of um, frame sacrifice and dying for their nation as kind of the, the best thing that you could possibly do. You know, dying for your country is the most honourable thing that you can do. And so they bridge these two discourses together. It's not just, you know, you should love your motherland for all these wonderful things that these people have done, but also you should now follow them. You should now be those heroes. I think that was uh, pretty eloquent and slightly disturbing too. But yeah, I think really important that we're we're talking about this. One thing I wanted to double back on just because I think it's important to paint a holistic picture for um, for listeners. And I'm still smarting having heard that I'm no longer a youth. I'm feeling very old. But you had mentioned <laughs> you had mentioned this lost generation that's older than these school children. And I, I want to double back on that just to explain to listeners, why are they lost? Who are they? Yeah, who are they? Um, this is, or these are youths who will have possibly grown up, um, have have done a lot of their growing up pre-Putin, right? So Putin, Putin is now 23 years into his leadership, albeit the four years between 2008 and 2012, where he kind of sat in the background instead and puppeteered. But yeah, so I'm talking mainly about those children who would have... Um, been raised in the 1990s, those kids, who will have seen a very small smattering of democracy. They would have been exposed to, um, because even though there was a conversation about bringing in a patriotic education in 1995, it was still a far way off from actually happening, right? The kids of the 1990s were um, exposed to more points of views, the educational system that they wanted to bring in prior to 1995 was all about kind of internationalization of education, getting more perspectives, having more critical discussion within the history textbooks. And then you've got the first kind of years of the Putin era, where 
they haven't yet got kind of a stringent policy in place. When I talk about the lost youth, I'm talking about those who have kind of, they grew up in the 1990s, they had possibly a different education system in play, but they were also brought up in what we now know as the wild 90s. So a time of chaos, economically, politically, socially. Um, And because of that, they've been a harder group within the youth to kind of pull into to Putin's propaganda, I would say. Um, and I saw this particularly, so um, I went to teach English in a Russian English language kids camp in 2017. And um, there were kids there who were like in their late teens. So now they're part of this generation that I'm kind of talking about. And I was, it was in Siberia. So I was kind of expecting to kind of maybe hear some more conservative views because they're further away from what was then cosmopolitan Moscow, St. Petersburg. But actually, I heard completely different. These were kids who were kind of championing LGBTQ plus communities, kind of skirting around discussions that we might have had about Putin, if we had any. And, you know, they didn't really want to talk about him. They didn't really care about him. They were, they didn't, the, they didn't, when I asked students about things like, um, you know, you're not far off when you'd potentially go to military service things like that, they would say, oh, I hope not. I really hope not. Um, and and I kind of didn't, not that I expected them to want to jump into military service, but just the whole conversations that I had with them was presenting a completely different youth that I was expecting to kind of approach. And um, they haven't had, so this lost generation are the ones that haven't had this comprehensive propaganda system that Putin's currently operating with. They kind of got the, the tail end of that um, when they were growing up. So a degree of, I guess cynicism and having experienced an alternative. I guess this is a great, great lead into our our next question here about this generational component. As far as you've measured and and seen in your research or in your own lived experience, how do young people in Russia, be they this lost generation or school children now, how do they differ from their parents or grandparents? What kind of changes are we seeing generation to generation broadly? So this is so complex. I'm not really sure how to answer this in a way that's simple enough, mainly because this is something that I'm always thinking about constantly. I would say that children who are, let's say, from their 10s to their 20s will have a similar education to their parents, likely, because their parents were brought up in the Soviet period. So this is why I'm saying 10 plus youth. This is who I'm talking about now. So they are being brought up in a comprehensive propaganda system. The current youth are the 10 plus youth that I'm talking about. But their parents would have also been brought up in a very militarized patriotic education setting as well under the Soviet leadership. The youth that are 10 years and younger, their parents could be those who have been brought up, who are this lost generation. And I would say that they probably differ very uh, on quite a, a large scale You've got youth who are under 10 who have only known this system, this education system that Putin's bringing them up in. They've only known that. But then their parents have been exposed, as we said, potentially to these other points of view. And I would say this is obviously the younger parents group that I'm thinking of here. And then you'll have those who are getting the tail end of um, Soviet education growing up during the period of Glasnost as well. Basically, the complex issue here is that in some groups, parents and children will probably have very similar views because they've been brought up in 
equally militarized education systems, just different kind of narratives of how they got there. And then you'll have groups where the kids are so immersed in a culture of militarization now, but maybe their parents weren't because they were growing up in the Glasnost period or in the 1990s. However, this is where I don't think we'll ever really know. There are stories of children kind of uh, telling on their teachers who are maybe speaking out against the war. So they're telling on their teachers to the authorities or to their parents and then being reported. These teachers are losing their jobs, maybe even facing um, prison prison time or, or um, you know, a slap on the wrist from, from, from security services. Um, but then you've also got the youth who... So you've got youth who are actually acting as those, like, gatekeepers, right, of the state, making sure that the Kremlin's ideas are being promoted. I also know of instances where parents themselves have uh, told on teachers, right, when they've spoken a particular way about, for example, the Second World War in Russia, that uh, isn't the state line. And they've been told on as well. But then you also hear of parents protesting against some of these narratives and discourses that have been brought into schools. So there was recently in Moscow, a, um, a Wagner mercenary went to a school and gave a lecture. And it has caused quite a bit of uproar. It's in the news, all over the news, about how this Wagner mercenary was in these schools and teachers were not, and um, parents even, were not happy about it. Was not happy about their children being exposed to Wagner mercenaries. So, yeah, it's very complicated. Well, that's why it's interesting. Um, I guess another another question um, and an important, if you're, important to note if you're not in this space living and breathing it, um, there's more to Russia than St. Petersburg and Moscow. It's a whole wide, diverse country. As I, as I have sometimes mentioned on here, my only editorial line is that Russia is a real place. Um, are we seeing uniformity in the way this education is being applied across Russia's geography? Does it differ in some of the more ethnic republics, I guess you would call them? Is, what are you seeing there? Uh, we started to see that in the 1990s. We started to see that these different regions had greater autonomy to bring in different um, aspects to the education system. But particularly on history education, uh, there's very little room for autonomy. Um, and that's the bit that I focus on is kind of that history education. There's very, yeah, very little room for autonomy there. Um, the, the state wants to promote kind of that one line across the whole of Russia. But you are right, even though the state wants to do that, it doesn't necessarily mean that children are internalizing it all in the same way, because they have different lived experiences. You, children are not all the same. So you had mentioned the kind of in-school education that's part of history. I've heard a lot about these, you know, specialized patriotic lectures. So I, I want to ask you more about that component and also the out of school pieces here, the the camps, the voluntary programs. I think it's kind of a general question, but what does that look like in practice? I'm, I'm also glad you've asked this question as well, because I do focus more on the outside groups, the groups that are outside of school, because I focus on groups like Unamia. So Unamia uh, was group set up in 2016. It's headed by the ministry, uh, the Minister of Defence, Sergei Shogu. They are a group of uh, children um, up until the age of 18 who have their own. They, so Unamia means like youth army, young army. They have their own uniform. They have their own uniform. They stand guard at... Um, memorial sites during key anniversary events they march so they marched last year in the um, victory day parade they had their own actual um 
regiment or faction. And they themselves, they um, involve themselves in lots of activities um, outside of school. But I'd say they involve themselves. I think the voluntary thing that they do is sign up to Unamia. And that's voluntary in the sense that maybe their parents have pushed them into it or whatever. But there is a voluntary element to it. But the projects that they get involved in are coming from all angles. So when I was talking to my um, colleague who's working with me on this, uh, Jenny Mathers, we were talking about how chaotic this all seems. And to me, it doesn't seem like a state that's kind of secure in its discourses. It kind of looks like a state that's uh, picking and choosing and pulling so many different, in this case, activities for youth to become involved with, activities where students can be exposed to the same discourses, but in different ways as a way of kind of hammering these ideas into the youth. You have Unamia, you have Victory Volunteers. So Victory Volunteers sounds a bit softer than Unamia. Um, They don't have, they don't march, for example, during Victory Day Parade, or they don't stand guard. However, they are involved in Victory Day celebrations in the sense that they help with the Immortal Regiment. They um, do things like handing out red carnations. So red carnations have become kind of a symbol of the war probably very similar to Britain using the red poppy. But they also hand out the um, St. George's ribbons and tell people how to wear these St. George's ribbons. These are the orange and black ribbons you sometimes see in media, just for listeners. Yeah, these are the orange and and black ribbons. And they tell them how to wear them properly. You know, you have to wear them in a particular way for them to, to show that you're the most patriotic. They also, both groups, UNAMIA and Victory Volunteers, um, we'll send letters to the soldiers on the front. We'll create care packages. We'll do, um, they was meet and speak and assist veterans of the Great Patriotic War. Um, it's all encompassing, but um, they also get involved in a lot of fun things. I say fun. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't probably count telling someone how to wear a ribbon as fun. But they also do things like the graffiti campaigns where they get to draw pictures of heroes on the side of buildings or they get to do war reenactments. So they have camps where um, children can reenact the Battle of Borodino or Stalingrad. It's all very interactive, immersive. It's all very performative. I Um, saw a video on Twitter of like tanks in a gym reenacting Kursk. And it looks like kids were having fun doing that. So that may may have been that. Yeah, I mean, so if you go to the Great Victory, the Great Patriotic War Victory Museum in Moscow, they have tanks and things like that uh, outside. And there's certain times in the year where you can actually go, like kids can get into the tanks and they can run through trenches and things like that. It's all very immersive. It's all about, you know, I I have to admit some of this stuff, I'm like, I'd love to have done some of this. I'd love to have reenacted, like not because I would have thought about the war specifically and about the emotions of it. I just would have been like, oh, that's quite fun to do. I think you have to admit some things to yourself when you are a researcher. You're like, why would students want to do this? But also sometimes like, why wouldn't you? Because it's all it's all characterized as fun stuff. And I think that's the that's the interesting thing with how deciding how students internalize this, because are they internalizing the key messaging or are they just internalizing that this is a fun thing to do? And that's why I'm doing it. The critical question. And I guess taking us to our last question, do we know, is there a way of possibly knowing if the Kremlin is connecting, whether this is kids like playing on old military hardware, whether they're becoming truly uh, strong patriots. And I guess the, the kind of contrast here is 
um, back before he was imprisoned, Navalny got some traction with the youth by virtue of the fact that his communications, his his presence, his online presence too, had a kind of cool factor to it. Uh, probably aging myself a few years here, but they had this whole meme with Putin's palace with the Akva Diskateka, the uh, mm-hmm. like the water disco. There's a whole song about it, which I can include in the episode description. It's really catchy. It's kind of been stuck in my head for the last, I guess, four or five years now. So that seems to have connected. What about what about the Kremlin? Any any way of knowing? There's things that we can take away. There's things that we can see in terms of the Kremlin's connection with the youth um, and ways that they're trying to. So with Navalny, one of the things that we probably must take into consideration is that a lot of the youth that he will have been attracted attention from are the ones in this lost generation. So um, when I was in Russia, this was in 2017. So this was literally, I was in Russia in 2018 as well. So this was during like Navalny's campaign prior to when he got barred. And um, as I said, I was in Siberia at the time and the kids there who were in their late teens, so 16 to 18, they were the ones connected with Navalny at the time. And I think they were part of this lost generation that we're talking about. In terms of do we know if the Kremlin is connecting with the youth, the current youth, if I'm thinking about those who are like 18 under, they can't escape it. That doesn't mean, again, that they're really emotionally connecting with it. They've got an active connection with it. They truly believe in these ideas. But also they are getting this information in various ways from all different angles. So even if they're not learn, even if they're learning about it in school, they can shut the textbook. But then, oh, look, there's the anniversary event. Look at all the posters here. Look at the toys here. Look at the what cinema, the new movie has been released. They're all pushing the similar messages, the same messages. And I think that the kind of key things that the Kremlin is doing, like the Kremlin knows its audience, right? It knows that the propaganda that they are pushing for men or women, it's different from youth. They also know that they've got different groups of youth. They know that they'll have those who are more conservative, more liberal, have access to more money, don't have as much money. They know who they're targeting. I think it's very comprehensive. I think it's very um, mature. It's intelligent, right? And so they're connecting to the youth with, um, first of all, by bombarding the youth, can't completely escape from it. Second of all, through these little fun activities and also by using the internet. You know, they use the internet just like Navalny does. They connect to the students, um, through, to youth even, um, through online systems, through apps. So that Unamia group that I was telling you about, they have their own app. You can sign up. They also hold all these concerts with all these Russian stars. Um, Timothy, for example, is someone who's been quite vocally pro-war. And he's, you know, they're, they're using that to connect with various um, groups in society. And on that optimistic note as always thank you for joining the podcast today um well thank you for having me thank you thanks again to allison for an enlightening conversation and to you listener for joining i hope you enjoyed this episode and i ahem wish you were here for next one the bear market brief podcast is part of the bmb russia and eurasia project which you can follow on twitter at the handle at bear market brief BMB Russia and Eurasia is brought to you by the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank based in Philadelphia. For more information on this initiative and on many others, visit fpri.org. Until next time, shine on.